Good evening, dear Dhamma friends. Another day, another Dhamma talk. <laughs> when I was about uh, five or six years old, I think uh, we used to occasionally be given a little bit of pocket money. And there was a toy shop in the village that I lived in. And every few weeks we had accumulated enough pocket money to visit the toy shop and buy some simple toy of our choosing. And I remember that uh, one of the things that I, I had around that time that was, I perhaps took the most delight in, was a, a kaleidoscope. It's a really simple kind of um, cardboard telescope with lots of coloured crystals inside it. And you would look in it like a telescope and you'd shake it up first and then you'd rotate the end. Maybe you, you had them too and played with them too. And it would create these beautiful different patterns with the crystals. And every time that you shook it up, they would reconfigure themselves into another equally beautiful and fascinating pattern. And I found that my mind, uh, yeah, I just really was, found that very fascinating and lovely to contemplate. And how these same kind of heaps of crystals could be arranged into all these different patterns with their own symmetry and coherence. Um, one of the things I love about the Dharma teachings is that they are a little similar to that. So we get to arrange them in all sorts of different configurations and look at them from many angles. Uh, somebody made a beautiful observation to me that it's like looking through the windows of a house or looking at the same interior of the house through different windows. And perhaps each angle that we look from reveals a slightly different perspective. And we could say that the interior of the house... The, the kind of common thread in these all these different perspectives that we contemplate is uh, the teaching that the Buddha said he gave, I teach dukkha and the end of dukkha. Because this is where all the angles on the Dharma ultimately point. So tonight, uh, my offering for our contemplation together is the uh, perspective or the framework of the Four Noble Truths. And particularly the tasks that Kim began to talk about when she spoke about the First Noble Truth. And so just to put them in different parts of the kaleidoscope patterns that we've been that we've been uh, contemplating over the last few days. Uh, yesterday, John was talking about the different exercises that are offered under the, the fourth foundation of contemplating dharmas in the Satipatthana Sutta, the ways of practicing mindfulness. 
And in the long version of that sutta, there are 13 different exercises. And one of them, and I believe it's possibly the final one of them, is the contemplation of the Four Noble Truths. So we find them kind of nested there in the instructions for how to practice mindfulness. And at the same time, within the Four Noble Truths, we have the Eightfold Path. And one of the the penultimate uh, factor of the path is right mindfulness, wise mindfulness. And that directs us back to the Satipatthana Sutta. So for those of us who like a clear, linear unfolding of things, these kind of uh, (laughs) details can drive us bonkers. But for those of us who who kind of like playing with these different patterns, uh, that can be kind of interesting to see. Uh, You might also remember uh, that when I talked about Papancha, I talked about uh, wise attention, Yoniso Manasikara, and that is defined as uh, examining our experience in the light of the Four Noble Truths to have a a basic understanding of the Four Noble Truths is actually uh, an important component of right view, which is the first factor of the path. So you see that the whole thing is a little bit cyclical. And in fact, it kind of works somewhat like a spiral. Well, that's how I, I find it helpful to imagine it. So the Four Noble Truths, in a way, they're the beginning of the path. And you might think also... You know, we're here we are three weeks into a retreat of deep practice and I'm proposing to reflect on the most elementary teaching. But it's also the highest realization that one can come to. So uh, fully comprehending and realizing the Four Noble Truths is actually the breakthrough to full awakening. So they also not only begin the path, but they complete it. And, of course, therefore, it goes to say that they're our companion all the way through. So I hope that something that I offer this evening will meet you where you are right now. One of the the things I like to contemplate about the Four Noble Truths is this word noble, uh, aria in the Pali, and traditionally translated as noble, but some like to point to it as ennobling. They ennoble the heart. And I also like to think of it as it points to the fact that these are facts or realities to be respected. It invites a quality of respect. And... As Kim said, the central axis of this teaching is the fact of dukkha, or dukkha is the the thing around which all these teachings revolve. And yet, the teaching on the Four Noble Truths, which is traditionally kind of viewed as, this may or may not have historically been the case, but it's presented as having been the first teaching of the Buddha, the setting in motion of the wheel of the Dhamma, Actually, although it revolves around dukkha, it's one of the most joyful teachings 
in the canon. So when the Buddha offered this teaching and the very first disciple had the first insight, which was fell short of a full uh, realization of Nibbana, but just caught enough of the path to realize that here was something that he could engage with in practice, and the Buddha realized that he had understood, said that a cry sprang up through all the different deva realms, and all the devas rejoiced because they recognized that the unstoppable wheel of the Dharma had been set in motion. So there's something also inherently joyful in this uh, recognition that there is suffering and there is also an end to suffering. One of the things that my teacher Ajahn Sumedho used to often quote and I was trying to look up where, where this, what the original source of this quote was, but, uh, and it seems like it's also popular with Ajahn Brahma Wangso, Ajahn Brahm. He used to say, joy at last to know that there's no happiness in the world. <laughs> uh, so that may or may not resonate, but for me there's something... There is something joyful in the recognition that there is a way out of suffering. There's also something joyful for me in recognizing that there's not something wrong with me for experiencing suffering or for owning up to suffering. And this word sacha, truth, noble truth, uh, The word satcha is also one of the paramis, truthfulness or honesty or integrity. There's something really, um, again, that makes my heart happy in being able to say it how it is. So I want to walk us through a contemplation from a few angles of these these truths. and not really the first one, so because Kim spoke very beautifully about that last week, but just a reminder of this first of the Four Noble Truths, that there is dukkha, and dukkha is to be understood. So each of these truths comes with the task, and the task in relation to the first truth is to understand. Dukkha is to be understood. So there were these three forms of dukkha that we encounter. Uh, what's called dukkha dukkha, a kind of immediate, kind of clear and immediate forms of suffering, and then viparinama dukkha, the dukkha of change and decay, the fact that things are constantly uh, in decline under our nose, and then sankara dukkha, the inherent stress of feeling compelled to constantly construct or fabricate experience, which really is the suffering of living in the sense realm, of needing to keep everything going. So tonight I want to really focus on the second and the third truth and a little bit on the fourth. So the second 
Samudaya, the origin of dukkha, and the third, Niroda, the extinguishing of dukkha. And then the fourth, the path which extinguishes dukkha or leads to the extinction of dukkha. So the second truth of the origin of dukkha goes like this. This is quoting from the this Dhamma Chakra Sutta, the setting in, in motion of the wheel of Dharma. This practitioner is the noble truth of the origin of dukkha. It is this craving which leads to renewed becoming, accompanied by delight and lust, seeking delight here and there. That is craving for sensual pleasures, craving for becoming, and craving for annihilation or unbecoming. So this is tanha craving. Uh, Actually, maybe an accurate, another translation of it is thirst. And it's described here as that which leads to renewed becoming, accompanied by delight and lust, seeking delight here and there. So I really like this description. It really points to the, the restless and the fickle and trickster nature of tanha, like the monkey or the monkey mind that we hear about and speak about. And the, the monkey mind is really the activity of tanha in, in process. And then it's defined as being of three sorts, and often we find experientially that these three sorts overlap. So the craving or the thirst for sensual pleasures, karma, K-A-M-A, tanha, the craving for becoming, which is the word bhava, and sometimes that's translated as existence, but if we translate it as existence, it kind of obscures the fact that it's a, it's a process that's happening and the craving for non-becoming, vibhava-tanha. So as we, as we contemplate these, you might also uh, consider how they might be showing up in your current experience here on retreat. So karma-tanha is the first for, or the craving for sensory experiences, which is perhaps the most kind of, familiar and uh, you know it's very obvious perhaps to point to the example of food as, as I was preparing for this reflecting preparing for this talk today I was noticing at lunchtime going through the food line and I got about three quarters of the way down the food line and noticed that my mind was totally fixated on what I was doing that I had lost all awareness of where I was and the people around me and things. And the mind had just narrowed itself into this single track uh, kind of, um, yeah, I'm getting what I want here, (laughs) type process. And uh, that mindfulness had kind of evaporated. And how immediate and uh, visceral this move towards uh, sensory gratification is uh, and how that keeps us 
fixed in that kind of train. And, you know, in certain circumstances, it's fairly harmless. In other circumstances, it can be quite harmful. Again, not particularly harmful, but very noticeable. So I was then, I was back in the teacher village down at the bottom of the hill preparing this talk. And I happened to be aware that one of my colleagues who'd had to go out this morning had come back with peanut butter cups. And that there were peanut butter cups over in the kitchen. And I was just watching my mind between contemplating what I was doing and every so often this kind of little image of the peanut butter cup would come into the mind and the mind would kind of wander off towards the peanut butter cup and I could feel my body being pulled in that direction. Uh, So these things exert a very strong hold on us. And uh, John was mentioned the third precept this morning when we took the precepts and uh, this is such a powerful you know, energy that we experience. Uh, One of my um, more humbling times in my early monastic life was in the the springtime as a 30-year-old novice nun and and sitting on that. There's a beautiful pond at Chithurst Monastery and a fallen tree that we used to go and sit on and Remember, it was like the springtime and the mating season of the frogs. And they were all busy at it there in the pond around the fallen tree. And I remember the thought just arising in my mind, I want to die and be reborn as a frog. (laughs) (laughs) So this, this energy is so strong. Thankfully, I wasn't reborn as a frog then and there, and I hopefully that's I've worn that karma off right now. <laughs> but you know, this this can really take us over this energy, and often it comes along with wanting to escape from the unpleasant vedana. So we might kind of be sitting here and we're tired and we just, all the cells in our body just long to go back to our dorm and snuggle down into our bed and lie down and go to sleep. Or we might be somebody who just like craves a lot of exercise and we're longing to run off up the hill. So there's this kind of leaning in us towards uh, wanting to immerse ourselves in pleasant Vedana. Spends time anticipating them or strategizing, wanting to prolong them. And then there's also the tanha, the thirst that arises at at the mind door, so the thirst for entertainment. Uh, And you are very much um, in a renunciation mode there, but we probably have all had these experiences of kind of surfing from item to item online, on the shopping catalogue, or channel surfing on the TV, or trying to find the right movie or the right novel. We've been trying just here in the midst of retreat, and it's like, what do I really want to do next with my, the next moments of my day? And that kind of shopping around for the experience that's going to bring me most satisfaction. And I've even noticed in myself sometimes and in people, people I, I know that um, 
at the set, the end of the day when you're feeling like you kind kind of haven't quite squeezed enough satisfaction or gratification out of the day you just think what what else can i entertain myself with before i before i go to bed even at the expense of sleep sometimes so these are these are fairly gross examples of karma tanha at work but even the the kind of craving for the very subtle forms of pleasure that we might experience in meditation this is also the domain of karma tanha and it's kind of exhausting and then bhava tanha the thirst to become or to have something become so it can be either to bring something into being or to become something ourselves uh, might manifest as as the longing to be the person who enjoys future pleasant experiences so we probably all find ourselves rehearsing and planning here yeah, sometimes for events far in the distance sometimes even for what's going to follow in our day so imagining a future situation and thirsting for that It's all the ways that we want to construct ourselves and construct our world. And sometimes that means kind of finding a sense of, we're kind of trying to find a sense of self that feels good enough or successful enough or safe enough, comfortable enough. Even understood enough. And sort of, I wonder when I will find a self that's understood enough. I want other people to completely understand me, but I don't fully understand myself. So how is that going to that man, manifest itself? So there's this, there's this momentum to kind of prolong and continue the sense of me as the experiencer or the owner of experiences or even as the enjoyer of the most kind of subtle meditation experiences, or the desire to become a more enlightened person. So we imagine a future me who's somehow enlightened or more enlightened. And then vibhava tanha, the thirst to unbecome or to have something not become, or to eradicate the aspects of experience or the versions of ourselves that make us uncomfortable physically or mentally mentally to eliminate from the world what disturbs us and this is it's very understandable this craving for our dukkha to end or for things not the craving for things not to manifest at all so these three forms of dukkha, the craving for sensual pleasures, the craving for becoming, and the craving for non-becoming, what do they all have in common is that they all uh, create or compound the experience of dissatisfaction, of incompleteness, of unfulfillment, of lack or constriction, the experience of dukkha. 
from the most kind of uh, coarse manifestations of that to the most subtle but nonetheless irritating feelings of restlessness. And that's not to, I just want to say in parentheses, that's not to say that uh, the urge to get away from unpleasant experiences and have pleasant ones isn't natural or in some dimensions of life kind of necessary because we're meant to receive signs of um, hunger and thirst, hot and cold, physical discomfort. And there's a place for responding to and taking care of the needs of the body. And the Buddha, the, the teachings actually say that there, there are certain um, wants and needs that are to be taken care of with wise reflection. That the dukkha in relation to those is to be overcome through wise reflection. So again, things like you know appropriate rest and so on. But what we're talking about here is the way that this urge of tanha kind of rules our lives beyond the limits of what's actually helpful. So it drives the forward momentum of our life towards goals that constantly elude us. This imaginary point that we, can, we, could, we think we could settle at where all our wants will have been satisfied. And also, paradoxically, it's this vibhava tanha that binds us even tighter to our unwanted experience so it's the main engine that's driving the wheel of suffering the chain of dependent co-arising that john mentioned yesterday where contact gives rise to feeling gives rise to craving gives rise to clinging becoming and birth and then the whole tumbling down and deterioration of that which has been clung to and the dukkha that ensues. So the problem is that the, the, the ignorant mind, the untaught, untrained mind, doesn't really understand what it is that gives rise to the relief of tanha. So it thinks that following the direction of the tanha, what the tanha wants is the route to satisfaction. But tanha itself is inherently unsatisfiable. It is actually, as we feel it, it's an experience of dukkha in and of itself and it's inherently unsatisfiable. So the task of this second noble truth is to let it go to abandon the tanha. And this is what leads to the experience of the third noble truth. So this, practitioners, is the noble truth of the cessation of dukkha, the third noble truth. It is the remainderless fading away and cessation of that same tanha, the giving up and relinquishing of it freedom from it, non-reliance on it.
And the task in relation to this is to directly experience the abandoning of craving and the cessation of dukkha that arises with the abandoning of craving. And the good news is it can be experienced. So to know the relief that comes from the letting go of of craving rather than the pursuing of the thing that's craved. And this is what our practice here and the significant practice of renunciation that we're all engaging in gives us a chance to actually really explore directly for ourselves. So what, what happens when we feel a craving and either by act of our choice, our, our refraining from following it, or by just a, an act of grace, perhaps, you notice it ending. What happens when letting go happens? Over the course of practice, though, there, I've come to recognize some thoughts that are just better not picked up. And you may have your own versions of those. That we gradually learn, you know, what things are like hot coals. What are we not going to pick up? Sometimes tanha just falls away by itself, and we notice that something that we've been craving or obsessing over suddenly that that longing is not there. And even when a a, a thirst or a craving, and it is satisfied by getting something that we want. We have these opportunities to pause and really notice the the satisfaction and the gap before tanha re-arises. And this is a great gift and blessing of slowing down because in our ordinary life, we often, we're just going, we bounce from one thing to the other and we don't pause to notice all the many, many moments of satisfaction that, can arise in experience where tanha is actually in abeyance. So to really, this is our task, is to really notice the moments of peace, the moments of peace from tanha. What happens when we actually let something go? And what Uh, Space and freedom opens up there. So if if we think about the the kind of best experiences that we've had in our meditation or the insights that we've had that have brought us most relief or deepest peace, and I don't know if this is true for you, but certainly for me, that they... They've all come from not from something that I've picked up or got, but from a sense of having seen through something or something having dropped away. And this is actually my personal preferred uh, understanding of the word vipassana. Not so much insight as seeing through. Seeing through. Seeing through my delusions or seeing through illusions about experience. Rob Babir, um, who was a much-loved teacher at Gaia House, his book is called Seeing That Freeze, his rendition of Vipassana. So seeing through 
the views that have imprisoned us or positions that we've taken up in relation to our experience or ways that we've frozen our experience in place through the activity of clinging. And Ajahn Buddhadasa, who I think we've mentioned before, great Thai teacher, he spoke in terms of mini, the realization of mini nibbanas. And I've always really liked this teaching, suggesting that these, this seeing of nibbana that's described in the Third Noble Truth, yes, there is the, the final seeing of nibbana, which is the culmination of the path, but actually this truth is in operation all the time in our experience, and we can see it right here in these each moment of letting go or release. Um, you know, just in terms, we all exhale. We couldn't only <laughs> inhale, right? You know, we, can't, we cannot but let go, but we don't notice kind of what happens in the letting go. I mean, obviously with breathing, you have to breathe in again. So that, you know, there's this... There's this um, he said that if we didn't do this, we'd all be drive, driven crazy because it's as if the mind would be ever, ever tightening itself. But what happens is actually it tightens and it lets go, but it normally retightens again straight away. So if we, if we really understand this core teaching about the activity of clinging and the activity of unclinging, then when we do notice craving arising in our experience, then it becomes not a threat against which we have to defend ourselves, but it becomes an opportunity. It becomes an opportunity And that's why we put so much attention into noticing and kind of helping you, hopefully helping you to notice over and over again, well, where might we be holding on to something? And to, to really, as Kim said also, to, to, to learn to turn towards and to move towards dukkha in this really counterintuitive move. Because you have to actually, we have to recognize something before we can actually let it go. We have to understand, or as Ajahn, Ajahn Sumedho used to say, stand under our dukkha in order to recognize it, in order to let it go. So you can't put down something that you don't realize that you've picked up. So people often wonder about spiritual bypassing, and spiritual bypassing is not kind of walking around the rock or the mountain. It's being blind to the fact that we're already carrying it. So this, these small recognitions of the, the third truth in action, uh, 
seeing them for ourselves, performing this task of seeing for ourselves what happens when craving is let go, when craving is abandoned. It gives us the taste of freedom that pulls us forward on the path. And we can find in everything, or everything that is causing us suffering, an opportunity to let go. And maybe that's just letting go of this urge we have to get rid of it which glues us even tighter into the experience of suffering. One of my favorite sutta passages says, terminating in Nibbana are all things. Yielding deliverance as essence are all things. There's nothing that can't be part of our that realization of freedom. So this this working our way out of the the trap of ignorance is a gradual process. And of course the final piece of the good news is that there is a path, the eightfold path, the fourth noble truth, which is a balanced approach to getting out of this existential trap of self-created dukkha or liberating ourselves from it. And I don't plan to talk about this in any detail at this point, but just to remind ourselves of the steps of this path of right view and intention Sometimes called the wisdom components of the path. Uh, And um, right speech and action and livelihood, the ethical components of the path. And then the uh, samadhi or mental cultivation components of effort, mindfulness, and concentration. And these perhaps belong in other turnings of the kaleidoscope, and we've touched on them in other other talks. But what they do is that they 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 serve to protect us from the worst consequences of the mind's ignorance of how to handle dukkha, or the ignorance of how to free ourselves from greed, aversion, and delusion. And they also create the conditions where we can see and accomplish these tasks of the Four Noble Truths so that they can be actioned and realized at deeper and deeper levels. And this is the task of the Fourth Truth, is to cultivate the path to bring it into being by developing it, putting it into practice, and that it can be done. Buddha said, I wouldn't teach this if it couldn't be done. I know sometimes it feels like it can't be done. But he said, with great compassion, I would not teach this if it were not possible for you to do. 
So there is a way of fully inhabiting uh, our human life that causes dukkha to be extinguished rather than ignited. And this is the step-by-step walking of the path, patipada, putting one foot after the other. That's the kind of literal translation of it. And we can only do that by meeting this moment's experience where we are as we are. There's no taxi ride, there's no shortcuts on this path. And yet, if we, if we have our kaleidoscope turned right, it is a joyful path. It can be a joyful path. And then the other good news is that we're, you know, we're not alone on it. We follow in the footsteps of other people. And it's also, I find it really um, nourishing to my heart to reflect that as I, as I take my steps, my fumbling steps on the path, we're also clearing the way for others. You know, we're making tracks that others can follow. And we walk with the support of others also. So we have these excellent conditions here for practice. A really good-hearted sangha. The myriad conditions of our lives. But, uh, yeah, we're not we're not aware of what each other person here is carrying. But there's this wish amongst us that uh, everybody be supported, safe, and uh, encouraged, and um, yeah, encouraged internally and externally in the walking of the path. And every time you show up, we are uh, offering one another that kind of encouragement. We also have a beautiful night. The sky is clear and the moon is getting full. And I saw that uh, it will be the full moon at half past four tomorrow morning. So if anyone's up at that time, you get to enjoy the moon at its peak fullness. And the full moon in February is is a special day in the traditional Buddhist calendar, at least in the Theravadan countries. Because it was said that on the full moon of February, uh, 1250 arahants, fully enlightened beings, spontaneously gathered to pay a visit to the Buddha. And so it's become known as Sangha Day, or Magga Puja, or Sangha Day. And uh, the second most important day in the calendar after the uh, Magga, uh, after um, Vesak, the Buddha's birth and Enlightenment Day and Death Day in May. But so tonight and tomorrow is Magga Puja, Sangha Day. And so I'll just close with be another succinct way of summarizing the path that the Buddha is said to have given on that particular occasion when the 1250 Arahants gathered together to listen. And you will have heard this before. But it's also, if what's offered 
gets too complicated or too wordy or we just want a simple signpost of where to place our next footstep on the path, you can consider this teaching. Refrain from all wrongdoing. Cultivate the good and purify your own heart. This is the teaching of all awakened ones. Let's just sit together for a couple of minutes. Thank you for listening and for your practice. And we have uh, just under 45 minutes for some walking. And uh, you might want to go in and enjoy a look at the moon. And those who'd like to, we'll be back at nine o'clock for some chanting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.